Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. True crime. Now, when you heard that phrase, what came to mind? Is it a famous case? Maybe a perpetrator of a crime? Their victims? Or maybe is it your favorite true crime podcast? Or documentary? Or docuseries? No matter what, true crime has managed to become one of pop culture's guiltiest pleasures, and perhaps one of the only true guilty pleasures. Yes, your love of the Real Housewives franchise is not a guilty pleasure. It's a show that's meant to be enjoyed, so you're welcome. But where does our admiration with it come from? True crime, I mean, not the Real Housewives. And more importantly, how does it affect us beyond watching a series or listening to a podcast? The release of series centered around famous true crime cases have made themselves right at home in our current pop cultural landscape, especially with the release of 2019's Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile from Netflix. And even one of the most acclaimed comedies from this past year, Only Murders in the Building, began over the main character sharing a love for a true crime podcast. We don't just interact with it via television series. It has a very large footprint in online spaces too. Finding community originally in forums and eventually graduating to more established social media platforms like Tumblr, Twitter, and now TikTok, the online true crime community is one of the internet's most fervent fandoms. And we'll unpack my choice to use that term later. So needless to say, true crime is everywhere in pop culture. However, there's a good and not so good and a very ugly side to it. So this week, we're going to be taking a deep dive into it all. I would like to say that there will be mention of a few cases with descriptions of what happened. So if that content is at all distressing to you, listener discretion is advised. So if all of that sounds good to you, let's get started. So y'all know in order to get down to the bottom of the why, we always have to figure out how did we get here? 
There is no specific place where our fascination with this subject began, but the best place is to start actually across the pond in jolly old England. As early as the 17th century, the Brits have been enthralled with the retellings of such events as the Ratcliffe Highway murders, and soon after, those stories would be adapted into popular forms of entertainment, including ballads and melodramas. As time went on, we had authors like Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and so many more who were able to weave grouping tales of fictional murders that captured the attention of the general public and made them want more. And in a lot of cases, they created their own pop culture figures in the process, like Sherlock Holmes. Eventually, that pension for the morbid and macabre would make its way over to the States through a litany of books. And as technology advanced, we got our morbid fascination put on screen. The advent of television, especially the advent of the 24-hour news cycle, revolutionized the subgenre. CNN has a really, really great docu-series that kind of goes into different decades. And the one about the 70s has an episode that talks about crimes and cults. And it talks about murder that was kind of a, a growth industry within the 70s with the uptick in crime and I think that was aided by the introduction or the slow approach of the 24-hour news cycle. Now the 24-hour news cycle allows for us to always be plugged into what's going on in the world both locally and globally which can be good. You know, to be aware is to be, you know, conscious of what's happening. And, you know, that's how you can protect yourself and your family. And so obviously there are positive side effects to a 24-hour news cycle, but there are also negative side effects to a 24-hour news cycle in that you can always be plugged in to the news. And that can create a sense of desensitization to what's happening around you. So around this time, we began to see more high-profile cases regularly being covered on the news, kind of as if they were television series. You know, in the late 60s, very early 70s, we got the coverage of the Manson family murders. We got cases like John Wayne Gacy, Son of Sam. And we also got, you know, coverage of things that weren't necessarily serial killers, but mass murderers, like with Jonestown. And so these things began to be covered pretty regularly. And it was a very violent time for television, not from a fictional sense, but from a just really direct nonfiction sense. And also what was happening concurrent with all of this was the first war to be shown on TV, which was the Vietnam War. So needless to say, a very violent time for television and for news. And this, I think, kind of created an uptick in people being really interested in this thing that was once taboo and pretty distant that was now on their, had the ability to be in their homes and on their screens whenever they wanted. There's a quote from The Simpsons, which I always will find a way to bring it back to The Simpsons, but there's a quote from Bart Simpson in a season six episode um, called Lisa on Ice that really sums it up, which is, ah, action news, the last place an impressionable kid can go for TV violence. So that really wraps up that point. And as we went on from the 70s into the 80s and 90s, that trend that began in the 70s really began to pick up. And the idea of following a case week to week became almost appointment television. So in the 80s, we get cases like the Menendez brothers. And obviously in the early 90s, we got the O.J. Simpson murder trial case, which was appointment television in a lot of ways from 
you know, the breaking of the murder happening to obviously the white Bronco car chase to the trial itself that is has all these quotable moments, like I said, as if it was a TV show to ultimately the verdict. And so much so that we got a fictional retelling of that case via the uh, trial of O.J. Simpson, which was like a TV show for FX, I think, a couple of years ago. So by the end of the millennium, our obsession with true crime had migrated into cyberspace, much like anything else. And social media created a community that was once taboo, but now became pretty widely accepted and discussed pretty openly. There are plenty of reasons why we're fascinated with true crime as a genre. There's, I don't think, one definitive reason as to why. It's multiple reasons. For one, I think a large appeal of this specific type of pop culture is that there's an audience participation element to it, in that the regular reader, viewer, or listener can try and solve the crime as it unravels. It provides a certain sense of authority to the audience, which has both good and bad side effects. From a psychological perspective, there's some reasoning too. Grace Blair for Psychology Today suggests that, quote, crime shows let us get a hearty adrenaline rush in the comfort of our own home. Adrenaline is something that we seek out on a daily basis, whether it be through playing a sport, climbing a mountain, or seeking out a crime thriller. Like a roller coaster, true crime series let us feel a simulated fear that we know poses no real threat, giving us a good stress known as eustress. The effects of an adrenaline rush push us into a state of biological overdrive, which can feel exciting in small doses, end quote. So those are just a couple of reasons, but there are many reasons why, and we'll get into kind of the good or the rather harmless defenses of true crime. But I do want to touch on that we as human beings have always had a collective fascination with the macabre and the morbid and a little bit scary. It's why we love horror movies, not, and I say we is kind of like a, like the, maybe like royal we, but I am excluding myself because um, I don't like horror movies, but that's neither here nor there. But we, minus me, have this kind of infatuation with things that are taboo. That's kind of just a fact of life. You know, everyone has their vices. And for a lot of people, it is getting as close to death as you can without, you know, committing to the bit. I think it is somewhat natural to be intrigued or curious about the, you know, more dark-sided things in life, like death, and I think there's kind of a train wreck aspect to it, where, you know, it's something that you obviously shouldn't look at, but you can't find yourself to pull away from. So we're, we've always had this fascination, and I think we always will. Now, the difference in that comes in, how does that manifest in our daily lives? How often are we giving in to that curiosity with the macabre and the morbid? You know, how are we moderating ourselves within that? And so we'll go into this a little bit later. But I do want to say that I don't think, nor is this podcast intended to beat down on, on, on people who like true crime, because I myself am not absolved of that. I, I love a good cult documentary. I really do. Give me a cult documentary. I'm going to eat it up. I really am. So I'm not absolved of, of this, of this activity. But the purpose of this episode was to touch on how true crime is not as harmless as it may seem. You know, it's kind of like cotton candy. 
Cotton candy is great when you have it every so often. But if you have cotton candy every single day of your life, you're going to have some pretty interesting side effects. And ultimately, it's not going to be the best for you. It kind of goes back into like anything in life, which is, you know, in moderation, things are fine. Even things that may not be on the surface, the greatest for us. And so this episode was just mainly kind of a a think piece into the idea of murder media or true crime media and to explore both the good and bad sides of it. So I am not saying that you're a bad person because you listen to a true crime podcast. This episode is merely meant to make you think. The meat and potatoes of this episode has kind of been broken up into three sectors, which is the good and maybe not necessarily good, but the harmless, the harmless effects, the harmless, you know, traits of, of true crime. The not so good, which is not exactly bad, but it's more of a danger zone. It's not completely harmful, but we should be cognizant of it and the effects of it. And the ugly, which is obviously incredibly dangerous. So let's start off with the good or the harmless. Now to me, this is my personal opinion. I think that true crime can be enjoyed, especially if it's fictional, but again, in moderation. And I think a fictionalized true crime TV show or anything or book or anything like that operates in a very different place than, you know, nonfiction true crime, which covers actual cases. Um, there are shows like Law and Order, SVU, uh, NCIS, CSI. Obviously, all of these, there's a whole subgenre of television that has found itself being a mainstay on our screens. Um, and it's for the reason that I mentioned above, which is kind of a simulated fear. We're able to get close to a case, but in our forever exploration of justice and the divide between good and evil, they are these cases that are self-contained and able to be resolved in a matter of 30 minutes to an hour. There's kind of a completionist aspect of it. It's the guaranteed happy ending almost. I think a lot of people find satisfaction within that, especially as cases in our day to day that are real don't always have endings like that. So it can be healthy and in some ways cathartic to watch these fictionalized versions of crimes and true crime and everything that are able to give us the satisfaction of justice. There also is a bit of a, a safety aspect to it, too. It brings awareness to making sure to take care of yourself in your kind of, you know, waking life. Now, again, you can get on the wrong side of this, which is kind of veers into just massive paranoia, but we'll get into that later. But on a surface level, it can bring awareness to a lot of safety practices. And if you're a woman or have experienced life as a woman, you know that it, there are just some things that you're always aware of. If you're walking at night, you do the thing where you put your keys in the middle of your fingers and use them as kind of like spiky brass knuckles. Um, it's always kind of the thing of keeping your head on a swivel, just always being aware of your surroundings. And moderately taking in media like that can help you to think of things that you might not even have thought of that can help you stay safe in your waking life. And you can share those information, share that information with other people too. There's also a sense of community that I think true crime brings to people. It's 
One thing that I've seen pop up quite a bit, which is, um, which was kind of very beautifully recreated in the first episode of Only Murders in the Building from season one, where Oliver, Mabel, and Charles are realize that they're all listening to the same uh, murder, like true crime podcast. And they begin extrapolating on like, you know, where was the dog or whatever it was they were talking about. And they kind of, there's this uh, collective, you know, spectatorship aspect to what, what they were seeing. And they were able to, you know, dig deep together and figure out and strategize and all these other things. And so I think true crime is kind of one of those genres that finds community in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of people who really enjoy it get a lot of satisfaction from someone else mentioning, you know, a true crime case and they're able to share their theories and everything. It's kind of just like with any, you know, form of media. It's like the water cooler talk, creating, trying to find a sense of, I guess, like kinship over things like a, you know, a shared love of something is always going to be super duper exciting, especially when it's something that can be so niche as true crime. And another thing that's kind of interesting because it's a bit of a double edged sword. And that, that is that a somewhat positive side effect of true crime comes from an innate sense of belief in our justice system. And by our, I mean the American justice system. So the exploration of justice is kind of a a core tenet of wanting to watch true crime because you're hoping that you'll be able to take in this narrative and at the end of it, uh, there is some justice that's brought to whether it's to the victims, to the families of victims, um, a conviction, whatever it is. You want to see the case get wrapped up nicely and the person who did the crime does the time, that type of thing. So it does come from a sense of our justice system will listen to a case like this, listen to the evidence that's presented and make a, a lawful decision on what happens. Now, the reason why I say that this is a bit of a double edged sword is that if you are in America and you are aware of our justice system, this is not always the case. It's an incredibly flawed system. And depending on who you are, that outcome is not going to always be so sure you can have the evidence you can see the crime being done and yet and still the verdict could be something that you're just like I I don't think that's why why is this verdict this way and there's a lot of factors that go into that um some that we'll touch on in a second but it's not always so cut and dry and also the American legal system and judicial system can be so difficult to navigate too and so sometimes it's just hard for a case to be even like to even make it to a high court let alone a regular court and then also we are still humans and biases still are very much prevalent and that can affect whose case gets heard and the quickness with which that case gets heard and the jurors on that case there are so many factors that go into it but because we're talking about the rather harmless, it does come from a, an altruistic place that some people, I would hope a lot of people who regularly take in true crime media um, do so because they, they do have an innate sense of belief in, in our justice system. And one of the last pieces that I want to talk about in this category is that it supports victims and can cause, you know, real change 
in how some cases are solved or resolved or treated. Now, again, supporting victims can also be a double-edged sword too. There have been instances where uh, some true crime content creators have collaborated with the vic- the families of victims to bring their story to light. I know a YouTuber by the name of Kendall Ray does that regularly. Um, and there have also been instances where people have said that, oh, for so long, I thought no one knew about this case of my my you know family member or friend and it feels good and it's very cathartic that it's been brought to light and people know about it and that's how their legacy is able to to live on there was a quote from uh, laura whitley who is a tiktoker and a podcaster for uh, she spoke to id in 2021 and she says quote listening to true crime podcasts helped me feel more prepared less alone and allowed me to take power back after my own assaults Education is power, and learning about true crime helps me feel stronger. It's helped me realize that I was not to blame for what happened to me. It is evidence and fact-based, which brings me a lot of comfort. I also find that it helps me deal with the fact that some things are out of our control. It can be scary to be a woman in this world, and I'm a white cis woman, albeit queer as hell, end quote. So in some cases, the it's not the impact of the victims, but it can be the impact of people listening letting them know that these things do happen and have happened to other people and you are not alone. But the double-edged sword of it, which we will get into a little bit later, is can that support go wrong? Can the adverse effects of that be more harmful than they are good? One one to chew on until we get there. So I think this brings us into a very uh, interesting subject matter that kind of exists in between the good and the not so good, which is shedding light on underrepresented cases or sometimes affecting change within um, cold cases or closed cases. So at the time of recording this podcast, it was recently announced that Adnan Syed, who was um, convicted in the 1999 murder of Heyman Lee, who was his ex-girlfriend, uh, was now being released from prison. I think he's going to be on home detention for like 30 days until they decide if they want to go to a new trial. And that case had been popularly covered by the podcast Serial. I think they want a Peabody for their coverage of it too. And so a lot of the, the questions that have been posed within that podcast eventually led to uh, Syed being released from prison, which on the whole is a pretty positive thing, I would say. It's a very positive thing, obviously, if you're wrongfully convicted to be released from prison. But a lot of op-eds have begun to, to pop up uh, in the wake of the news, and it kind of retroactively critiques Serial's approach to how they covered the pod, or how they covered the case um, and how true crime podcasts oftentimes, because they don't all, not all of them operate at a, a journalistic standard of trying to kind of check your bias at the door. How can that, that affect how a case is, is covered? And so there was a really interesting article from BuzzFeed News by Sarah Weinman, who brought up a very interesting point, um, about this case specifically, but it can be applied kind of on the whole quote. A major one critique was that in prioritizing the serialized approach, the podcast failed to fully reckon with systemic inequities in the criminal legal system, specifically the rampant anti-Muslim sentiment that radiated throughout the police investigation and courtroom proceedings. 
Koenig's first-person narration, meant to present herself as approachable and fallible, instead revealed the inherent naivete of her perspective as a white woman reporter. By failing to fully delve into the ethnic backgrounds of both Heyman Lee and Adnit Syed, Serial missed an opportunity to explore the ramification of Lee's murder and Syed's conviction on the Korean-American and Pakistani communities in Baltimore and beyond, end quote. So the quote, while it is directly talking about this case, kind of sheds light on, you know, maybe the not so good parts of covering these cases, which is a lot of podcasters, even myself, I'm not a true crime podcaster, but the point is we all hold biases and we all hold very specific perspectives based on our identities. And so when those identities aren't taken into consideration, especially with how we cover, with how we cover our cases, it can have harmful side effects. So this leads us into the not so good area. Again, this is more of like a danger zone. It's not directly harmful, but it's not the best either. Um, And the first point that I kind of want to talk about in the not so good danger zone section is who tends to be the biggest fans of true crime? And how does that reflect which cases get covered? And how does that reflect how we talk about these cases? Now, the answer to that first question tends to be in a lot of ways, a lot of white women are very big, big fans of true crime. I think women in general, but white women specifically. And so that can kind of lead us into how does this reflect which cases get covered and how does this reflect how these cases are, are talked about? In that quote, uh, Sarah Wyman brought up a very interesting point, which is that the reporter for Serial, Sarah Koenig, who was the producer and the host of Serial, um, she operated from a very specific perspective that was a bit, you know, whether consciously or, or unconsciously negligent of the identities of both the at the time convicted and the victim. And so that brings us into an interesting place of who is the audience that we're speaking to? And how does that affect which cases tend to get talked about and which cases don't tend to get talked about? And I think a perfect example of kind of what I'm speaking about now is the case from, I think, last year surrounding Gabby Petito. And that brought up a very interesting phenomenon, which I learned about, um, which was kind of the missing white woman syndrome and how the media tends to fall very privy to that. And what that kind of essentially means is that cases surrounding you know white women tend to get a higher scale of coverage than other cases especially those uh, about you know women of color black women indigenous women especially and so this whole danger zone area is kind of meant to shed light on when taking in true crime think about the cases that tend to be talked about whether it is a white person perpetuating it against people of color, which is kind of the main critique of the new Dahmer series that I mentioned at the top of the episode, which is that a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer's victims were black and brown uh, queer men or disabled men. And the reason why he chose them is because he knew that the police would not put a ton of resources or effort into trying to convict him. He knew that people didn't care. And so it's it's a good exercise to think about who tends to be covered the most within this certain genre of true crime. And does that desensitize to you to other victims that may have cases that either go underreported or aren't talked about at all? This isn't to say that every single true crime 
piece of media is created equally and there are many true crime media that do shed light on these things and take these factors into consideration but the point is that there is an overwhelming number of these cases and crimes that are given to an audience that can all kind of look the same and I think laddering back to the Gabby Petito case, there also began to be this kind of like inescapable sphere of coverage surrounding her case, especially on TikTok and on Twitter. People began to unfold it in massive numbers and it was kind of like inescapable in a lot of ways. I remember when it happened and day to day there would be people, you know, just anyone can make a video talking about, oh, well, I charted this or I charted that. Or there were people who had seen Gabby and her boyfriend who talked about um, their experiences and had come forward and everything. And so it was creating this kind of endless feedback loop of, of coverage surrounding this case. And it put a, a great emphasis on on her case. And this is not common. This doesn't happen with a lot of other cases. And even now, I think their Lifetime has just made a series or docuseries or like movie about her case. So how quickly did this case surrounding this this white woman, which was very tragic, you know, how much coverage and, you know, notoriety and attention did that get and how you know, is this happening to her counterparts? Not so. And so I think true crime really does, you know, while it is something where we are enamored with these cases and these people, we do have to consider who, who are these cases about and how harmful are they to certain communities? And we have to take those identities into mind. These aren't, you know, faceless people murdering other faceless people. A lot of the times these motives can, you know, be grounded in identity and so it's not uncommon for a serial killer to kill based on race or based on sexuality or ability those things are very much prevalent and should be we should really keep it in mind especially when we're taking in certain cases this also brings up what I talked about with the double-edged sword of the victims which is the burden that the victims and survivors must bear which is the other side of the coin, which is that a lot of true crime podcasts have brought up cases and re-traumatized families of victims all over again. I don't think that every single true crime podcast out there, there are a lot that do, but there are a lot that don't go through the, the, the tedious nature of reaching out or trying to, you know, do it in collaboration with with victims families oftentimes they kind of just pick up a case and talk about it and that can re-traumatize you know the survivors of these victims all over again i've seen a couple different instances on um tiktok where people have talked about people who are, are survivors or like family members of victims who have gone and talked about how it is re-traumatizing to bring to hear the case of my my mom or my dad or my friend brought up over and over and over again and people won't let me escape it that's all they want to talk about and i think sometimes we kind of with taking in true true crime not necessarily like fictionalized accounts of you know fictional murders like a ncis or law and order but when we take in real cases we forget that there are 
real people connected to those real cases. And oftentimes it can be incredibly detrimental to their own grieving process to constantly bombard them with the thing that they are grieving over. And the last thing that again is not as a not so not so great danger zone item, which is adding entertainment to real cases. And this is what I'm this is more so the kind of um the very specific genre that is often found on either TikTok or YouTube where you're adding another element on top of talking about murder cases. So I've seen um a series on TikTok where uh, someone creates a certain, um, you know, convicted person's last meal if they're on death row or a the very popular subgenre within true crime, which is like the makeup and murder uh, subgenre where you have a lot of people who wear makeup, uh, putting on their makeup and talking about these different cases. And while on the surface, these things can appear harmless, I think the urge to want to not desensitize, but to make talking about a murder case more palatable via doing this other activity can, in the long run, be extremely harmful. Um, I think there's a certain level of, 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 of care that needs to be taken. And this isn't to say that everyone who engages in the specific, in this specific type of, um, media within the subgenre you know, doesn't take into account, you know, victims or anything like that, because I'm sure that they do. But it can be a, a weird kind of, you know, juxtaposition when you're talking about a murder case and someone is putting on their makeup, you know, like when it's treated as kind of like a cavalier thing, it can, you know, whether you're conscious of it or not, desensitize to you to what you're actually hearing, which is a murder case. You know, like there is a level of of respect that I think those those cases require when talking about them. And it's not always, you know, it doesn't it doesn't need to be something that needs to be made palatable. And I right before recording this podcast, I saw someone on TikTok explaining how they went from being an avid true crime consumer to really pulling back. And they said that they kind of just stopped to think about why is this media trying to, you know, make these cases palatable to me? Like these are incredibly horrific things that happen. They don't need to be things that are like, well, we, we can kind of downplay it because it's a little too gruesome to talk about. It's like, no, these are things that actually happened. And so if we, if they're too gruesome to talk about, maybe we shouldn't be trying to make entertainment out of them, which I think is a really interesting point. I think this also kind of bridges us into the incredibly dangerous category, which is obviously the adding entertainment to real cases thing, i.e. like the makeup and murder um, thing. It's not, you know, obviously they're not treating it as, you know, a, a serial drama or, you know, like a, a soap opera or something like that or gossip, but it can very quickly, very easily lead into kind of the fictionalization of of real world incidents, which is leads us to the ugly. So what I meant by the fictionalization of real world incidents is kind of leads me into the just on the surface, kind of horrific side effects of the true crime community. Um, so I've seen there are, if you go on Etsy and you search up, uh, you know, 
Charles Manson merch, Ted Bundy merch, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer merch. Oh boy, what what will you find? Uh, there are people who create t-shirts and you know mugs and candles and etc. Merch like merch that you'd buy for uh your favorite musician or actor or whatever it is. Uh, you can find that for serial killers and mass murderers. And this is just kind of a weird fictionalization. People will start to, when they get too too into it, too far gone, begin to see these murderers and, you know, people perpetuating these very horrific crimes as almost just fictional pop culture figures are just vehicles for this really interesting story that they've wanted to hear. And that is in and of itself is incredibly dangerous because if you remove the the emotion of being able to understand what actually happened, you're kind of, in a way, taking away the power of the victims and making them almost just not appear human. It, it can be incredibly dehumanizing when you see someone wearing just like a, a, a Charles Manson, you know, merch piece. And it just makes you wonder like, do, do you see this as a crime or is this just like a fun horror movie story for you? And I was talking to someone kind of about it in anticipation for this episode. And I brought up the fact that the worst parts of the true crime fandom, which is laddering back to what I was talking about at the top of the episode, that fandom um, operate in a similar place as the worst parts of traditional fandom, which you'd find with like, you know, your Star Wars, your Marvel, you know, whatever it is like for like fictional nerd media fandom is very important and so these two communities have a lot of shared traits in that the worst parts of the kind of nerd fandom will treat a fictional thing as if it is real like if you've seen a, a star wars fan they act like they know anakin skywalker personally like they defend that man like they are bosom buddies and so they take something that is fictional and make it real and they kind of lose sense of like, this is not real. This is a fictional world. Anything can happen. Same thing goes for people who are like, well, scientifically, it's not possible for Halle Bailey to play Ariel because black people can't be married. Again, she's a fish. You know what I mean? Like that is not real. It's a fictional world. Why are we trying to make it real? You know what I mean? So that's happening over here. Whereas the true crime community takes things that are real and makes them fictional. And this leads into kind of the bad parts of the TCC, which is like the true crime community, which is a name for kind of the more toxic elements of those who indulge in true crime media. And this is where you will find uh, people who have uh, gotten so kind of far down the rabbit hole that they have romantic interests for serial killers and mass murderers they find ways to resolve or absolve themselves of what they've done they get so invested in the case that they lose sight of what actually happened which is people were were killed and they become fans of of these of these you know horrible human beings and it starts off i would probably say harmless and thinking like oh you know like it's the the taboo thing of like oh he's he's cute obviously he did something bad and i'm not excusing the behavior like i think that's a common phrase that i found in doing research into the tcc 
a lot of people have said like you know obviously you know what he did was wrong but you know and then they come and and basically justify whatever it is that they that they did and this is manifested in real world tragedies again even like another real world tragedy um in the fictionalization of 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 murder um because a lot of people have found themselves falling too deep into a case and one uh case that this kind of reminded me of was Sol Pais who was a young woman who uh went to Boulder Colorado and was attempting maybe to recreate or do something involved with Columbine on the anniversary of the incident um she was a part of an, an online a community of people who were interested in the Columbine case. And she found herself, you know, getting really enraptured in the case and the two, um, the perpetuators of the crime, which are Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. And she found herself getting deeper and deeper and deeper entrenched into everything. And soon it kind of led to her, you know, wanting to exact her own type of, of violence. Um, and this happened, I think, in twenty in twenty nineteen. Um, she had an online journal where she talked about all of these incredibly horrific uh, things, and it eventually led to her going to Colorado and purchasing a a firearm. And eventually, um, she didn't make it to Columbine High School, but she ended up killing herself. And the whole incident was just like there was a uh, I think a New York Times a video where they talked to someone who was in community with her who had since gotten out and talked about how how deep into it she was and I think in some ways it's easy to get so so deep into true crime and like I said before it's it could be very subtle and unassuming it could just be kind of touching on that very you know taboo side of ourselves where we want to talk about or read into something that we find interesting that is a little bit morbid um but the more and more and more you find yourself going into it you find yourself almost so deep into it one day you wake up and you're just like i'm i'm in too deep and in certain cases in the case of sol pais you can't get out and, and so i think this this episode was was prompted by me pondering the question of can you ethically consume true crime media and in doing the the research and thinking about this subject uh my answer to that question is no i don't think you can um i think there are you know there are varying there are many factors that go into consumption of true crime media. There are varying levels of consumption in true crime media. Not every single true crime or murder media piece of content is created equally. Um, and I do think some people try to approach their reporting of cases or reporting of victims and they try to approach it with a lot of care and um, try and approach it with an ethical viewpoint. But on the whole, I don't think you can ethically consume true crime media because at the end of the day, it is a form of entertainment made on the suffering of, of, of others. And that can be unethical. But one thing that I will say 
is that, like I said in the middle of the episode, I don't think it makes you a bad person if you've ever watched a true crime podcast or listened to a true crime podcast, watched a docuseries or anything like that. We can't, you know, every single thing that we do in life is not going to be always good. We all know this. But when it comes to media, the best thing that we can do if we know that we're going to consume something that can be seen as unethical is to be cognizant of its effects and be cognizant of kind of the worst parts of it and knowing when to hold back. The name of the game with interacting with any type of media that can, you know, lead to pretty catastrophic things or are about pretty tragic events is to be really, 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 really cognizant of how much we're consuming it and to self-moderate what we're consuming. You know, an occasional docuseries or podcast here and there is, you know, it's not going to harm you. But if you find yourself only consuming true crime media, do explore how that may affect you in other ways. You know, does it lead to heightened amounts of stress and anxiety and paranoia? It very well could. And there have been a lot of studies that have gone into the kind of the mental health effects of consuming, you know, exorbitant amounts of true crime media. So like I said, the whole crux of this episode is not to be like to browbeat and say that you are a bad person if you consume any type of true crime media because the point is we're all going to do it at some point we're all extremely curious about this very taboo subject matter but the best thing to do is to moderate and take it in in small doses if you can true crime is a very interesting piece of pop culture as it is uh pretty morally and ethically dubious and can be really thrilling to watch um but like I said, everything in moderation and uh, yeah, just be safe with it. That's all my, that's always my rule. Just be safe. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations. You're an Afternooner now. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. If you had a good time, it helps out the pod and you get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. So it's wins all around. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I've got, I've really got to reconsider my true crime media consumption right now. So I've got a lot to think about. I totally get it. And I'm with you. And when you're ready, you can find all that information in the info in the description box down below. I hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory, 
From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Hi, just checking in and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now.